morning, Veritas. How we doing? Go Hawks. There we go. Uh, if you were here last week or if you were part of Jeff's little lesson we had up here, you know that we're starting off this year a little differently. Uh, usually, we like to start off the year with a lot of new faces, new semester, kind of new blood. Let's just talk about who we are, right? Let's just talk about like, what are the things we believe? Let's talk about who Veritas is, maybe like our, our you know, contribute, connect, celebrate, all those things. This year, we're doing something a little different, and we're kind of talking about who we want to be, right? We're, we're actually starting off this season, this whole year, on the note of humility. Not your average uh, home run hitting series to get the people excited about. Not really one that you even want to preach about. I mean, if I'm being honest, it's like you make the prayer, God make me humble. That is a terrifying prayer. You're not like getting all excited to get up here and preach or get excited to come to church. I cannot wait to be humbled today. It's not something that we talk about very much like that. No, it's something that we just hope God is very, very gentle with. Right? We, we recognize that we have pride. We recognize that humility is probably a good thing that would make the world probably a little bit better of a place if people around me and maybe even me were a little more humble. But it's a really scary prayer. It's a really scary place to put yourself asking God to make us a more humble people. So why are we doing it? Here's the answer that we learned last week. Two things. We, Veritas Church, are very, very blessed. And we are very, very desperate. Right? This is what I mean. Last week, we opened up to Deuteronomy 8, Mark did that, and we saw what happened when God blesses the people he loves, right? God takes the Israelites and he, he brings them just right onto like the precipice of like the promised land. He's like, this is what's going to happen. I am going to just lavish you with gifts. You're going to have like milk and honey, like prosperity and pleasure just to the full. Like you're not going to have to work and wander like you've been doing. Actually, I'm going to provide everything and more that you need but this is what you have to be careful of. Don't you dare forget the Lord your God. Why? Because he did everything. Don't confuse the gifts that you are about to receive for the gift giver himself. He is so much better. And this is what they did. Right? God's people come in and over and over again we just we look through the pages of the Bible and we see God's people being blessed and being loved by their father. And then them forgetting. Them taking the gifts and forgetting the gift giver. Success bred pride. And pride, when it is fully bred, gives birth to sin. And it forgives or forgets our Lord. So Mark helped us to remember the last nine years of our time. Last week is our birthday or something like that. Like we turned nine years old as a church. Uh, but not nine, not nine years have been here, right? Like if you've been around for even a year, you've been at the Marriott Hotel, you know that God's brought us on like a unique journey. That it's not just been like a snap your fingers and uh, you know, God is just gonna turn the light switch on and all of a sudden thousands of people are coming. No, it's been a grind, right? If you've been around Veritas at all, you know that God has like kind of brought us through that wilderness, if you will, not trying to be dramatic, but kind of like waiting to see like, hey, when will we get these things like a building? When will we get things like, you know, not being in debt, you know, things like that, good things that we should want that we were hoping God would bless us with. And as Mark shared like over here, like the story of the Israelites and like this is where they were in the Old Testament, we got chills. We got chills because right over here we see us. And we see this eerily similar comparison where God is blessing his people and they forget him. And instead of humility and love for their God, they say, we did this for ourselves. We built this. We deserve this. 
And as we look at ourselves today, in this season of life, countless baptisms, countless people coming to our ministries, a youth ministry is thriving, a kids ministry is bursting at the seams, women's Bible studies, men's Bible studies, assault kickoff with over a thousand people right in the middle of Iowa City, floods of people coming in to Veritas Church, provision financially, and we have to be desperate because we are just as blessed as the people we read about in the Bible. And so the question is, will we forget our God? That's really the question with this whole series, right? Like, will we remember our God's blessings or will we forget him? The reason we're starting this year with humility is because we're blessed and we're desperate. Blessed by all the salvations, provisions, even literally the walls that we're sitting within today. But we're desperate because we know the pride in our heart threatens to keep us from the gift giver himself. And nothing will make a shipwreck of our souls faster than a subtle air of pride in this room. And so here's, here's what we're going to aim for today. We're going to aim at biblical humility. Okay, not like our own definition of humility, not like kind of like this just, just simply like a quietness or not bragging about yourself that maybe the world would find us. But we're actually going to aim at a biblical view of humility that we find in Philippians 2. And this is what it is, okay? It's very, very simple. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Look at that. Philippians 2, 3 says, it says, actually, consider others more important than yourselves. Easy. Done. Let's just decide to do it. It should be simple. You can memorize that all day. We don't even have to remove any of the words or anything. Like, I think we got it. We got the big idea. Like, consider others more significant than yourselves. And then I believe that we will be what the Bible says is humble. But this isn't saying that humility is talking bad about yourself, right? It's not like, oh, guys, well, Veritas, honestly, we're not that great. Like, I don't know. I know we counted like a thousand people, but we should probably just say like 700 were there just to make sure we're being humble. Or, you know what? There's been a lot of baptisms, but eh, there should have been more, right? Like, we don't want to talk. That's not humility. That's us like acting humble so that other people will recognize us like that. That's actually pride in its grossest form. All right, it's not talking poorly about ourselves. It's actually just talking less about ourselves. It's actually just not looking in the mirror in a different way, but it's actually just not looking in the mirror at all. This is so radical. It's not the golden rule that says, all right, that we, you know, we learned about this all growing up. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. Why? Because you want everybody to treat you well. I didn't treat others the way I want to be treated because I cared how they felt about themselves. No, I wanted to treat you well growing up in school because I wanted you to think I was cool or to treat me well. No, this is far more radical than even the golden rule. This is saying you are to treat others more important, with more esteem, more significance than you even consider yourself. There is no reward immediately for this. There are no strings attached. You are not expecting to be served in return. Biblical humility is treating others as more important than yourselves. Like imagine if you walked in here today and there was like a room full of movie stars. Crazy to think about, I know, but you walk into church and, and you're, you got your normal cadence, you're walking, you're trying to get past the people in the door who are bombarding you with good mornings and you're getting in here and all of a sudden, Leo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, uh, who else? Doesn't matter, just them, they're here, <laughs> right? They're here and, and you look in and every single chair is full with movie stars. What, 
what is your posture going to take? Like, literally, physically, what are you going to do? I'm not going to walk in and just, like, puff my chest out a little bit and, like, start making a ruckus and trying to get everybody to look at me. I'm not going to be like, oh, yeah, sweet, I totally deserve a beer. No, I'm going to be like, what in the world is going on? And I'm going to be like, oh, you need a chair, like Brad Pitt. Yes, sir, absolutely, like, take my chair. It's great. Leo, you don't like where you're sitting because it's too loud. Come sit over here by me. Like, you take on, like, a posture, like, a different attitude, like, a different way you're even talking, the cadence of your words. Every single thing, whether you know it or not, is humble. It's different. You're feeling the weight of the importance of the people around you, and this is hard, and not just because, like, you guys, we, sorry, we don't look like movie stars, almost threw some shade at you there. You all look great, but we're not, like, you don't walk in here and get us confused for a bunch of important people. You don't walk in here and think, these are society's best. Look at him on stage. He looks like the next mayor. He looks like somebody that I would want to give. No, we're not like that. That's not what defines us. It's not how we see ourselves because it's not true. But this is hard because if we're honest, we don't see each other with this type of importance. I don't see you with this type of importance. Like, think about this. What is the route that took you to your seat today? How, how many seconds does it take for you to get from your car, speed up going in the doors because you're getting bombarded by over-aggressive door greeters, and find your chair and immediately start checking your phone? Like what route is it going to take for you to get from here to your car, maybe pick up your kid as fast as you can, grab your watch, and, and go turn on the football game as fast as you can to not be bothered by anybody. Like, what is the way that we do Sunday mornings? The way that we navigate crowds, the way that we, like, bounce, this is me, okay, Dale, me and you, bounce our eyes around in conversation in the lobby, not able to focus in as if somebody's not actually worth my time. This is incredibly hard. It's not fun to pursue. It's really hard to listen to and to love the people in this room, if we're being honest. I mean, let's be real. What if, what if we asked you to do something? Like, like, what if you actually had such an intentional conversation or you actually sat down with somebody, you actually looked them in the eyes and talked to them and esteemed them as important? What if they actually asked you to do something? What if they actually asked you to come to their connection group? That'd be awful. Like, what if they actually asked you to serve in Veritas Kids? These are the type of people you want to avoid. <laughs> and yet, the biblical view of humility is that we would consider one another in this room more significant than even ourselves. Here's the bigger problem. It's not only that humility is really, really hard. It's not only that we need to strategize really well and, and just grind deep so that we can be a more humble people. No, it's actually that this is impossible. <laughs> it's actually that we can't be a truly, purely humble people. Why in the world would I say this? It's like asking a blind man to see just by simply opening his eyes. Think of it this way. It's like if we try really, really hard to be humble, like our goal is to grind and grind and grind. And actually, this three or four week series is actually become a month, and that month has become a year. Why? Because I don't think we're humble enough. But in a year, we get to the finish line and we say, yes, we made it, church. You are humble. I am humble. And the banners come down and we pop the champagne. There's going to be a really weird feeling because we realize at that moment we are not actually humble. <laughs> that the sin that we were trying to kill, and like we actually watch God destroy in our lives. That when we celebrate that even the wrong way and take credit for ourselves, we have dove into sin on a whole new level. This is the danger of pride and humility here, this, this circular war that's going on. That our efforts can lead us into a deeper sin 
than what we were already in. That pride is so intertwined with our souls that it needs to be cut out. Like bubble gum in the hair, you can't simply remove pride from your soul. It needs to be chopped. I didn't mean to say that so seriously. That was supposed to be like a lighter-hearted thing. But my tone was like, if you got bubble gum in your hair today, it's got to come out, man. And so what we need to do today is we need to lean in into something really, really simple. We are desperate for a gift from God, right? We are desperate. We are desperately in need of a gift from God. We need to position ourselves under the faucet of grace and just beg that God turns it on. And so this is how we're going to do that. We're actually going to pursue humility like this today. We're going to be in Philippians 2, actually before the part that we're supposed to memorize. I thought I was preaching on that, but it turns out I'm preaching on the, the text before that. So uh, Philippians 2, starting in verse 1, it's actually going to take us um, this whole chapter, this whole section is going to take us to the cross in a very unique way. Okay, that, that's where we're headed eventually, but it's going to take us to the cross where we're confronted in a very unique way, a very profound way with the grandeur of God and the love of God, right? It's like the grandeur, the majesty, or the hugeness, the greatness of God and all of his glory. Like, don't think like Grand Canyon. That's overused. Don't think like you show up to the Grand Canyon and you're just breathless saying, like, wow, this is amazing. No, think like you're at SeaWorld and there's like a killer whale that just swims right past you. Or you're out in the middle of the ocean and you see like a whale like open up. The reason I say whale is because not only is it massive and gorgeous and majestic, it can kill you. And it doesn't for some reason. Fascinating creatures. Don't think like Grand Canyon where it's like, wow, this is amazing. Think like, no, I'm actually terrified of this. The grandeur of God, the majesty, the holiness of God at the cross is met and collided with the love of God where we see the mighty one lay all of that glory down so he could be killed by people like us. And so Philippians 2 in such a good, unique, powerful way takes us right to that point where the grandeur of God and the love of God collide with us in all of our sin and all of our failures and all of our pride. And if we can grasp the implications of what Jesus actually did for us, we have hope to be humble. If we grasp humility, or rather, if it can grasp us, to say it more appropriately, something will actually happen to us. We'll actually begin to become a people who are captivated more with Jesus than we are ourselves. That we're actually going to like looking at the cross more than looking in the mirror. That we'll become a people who are gripped by unity and joy that this world can't take away. That like no matter what like emotions are, are, are like trying to capture your soul today, like you can actually come here with people, link arm in arm and find joy together. Something that not even death could take away from you. And we'll become a people who are actually free to love one another like we're supposed to. This is what a humble life actually looks like. This is what the humble church from Philippians 2 is actually going to look like. And this is our quest. We want to experience this humility. It's actually just a race to the bottom of the ladder. Okay, that's where we're going today. We're racing to the bottom of the ladder. It's not us trying to be better people or add to our resumes. It's not us completely throwing, the, the, like throwing our, uh, our worth and our significance into how much money we can make or how many good things that we can leave in this earth. It's actually us completely throwing the, those ideas out for something far better. It's not us climbing the ladder of significance that the world's narrative has always been compelling us to do. It's racing to the bottom of the ladder and finding eternal glory where Jesus actually is. So here we go. Let's look at Philippians 2 verse 1. We'll just do this one verse at a time here. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, 
If any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, stop. Okay, Paul starts out this chapter, Philippians 2, with a massive rhetorical question. Massive because the answers are like incredibly weighty, like huge if statements. Like, I really need to know if these things are true or not. But rhetorical because as Paul and this Philippian church sees it, as they've experienced it, the answers are a thundering, profound yes. These are true. And this is what we actually need to know about Paul as we're diving into this right now. Paul's in jail. Okay, Paul is in jail because he's doing what we're doing. He's preaching the gospel, but people are not okay with it. Paul is turning the world through the Spirit of God on its head. People are coming to Christ in drones, and he has suffered greatly for it. Covered from head to toe in scars from being beaten, from being shipwrecked, from being flogged and mocked by every single person that opposes the gospel. And yet, here he is, full of joy. He loves this church wildly in Philippi, and he wants them to kill their pride. He wants them to find humility. He wants them to be united. He wants them to be a people who are more captivated with Jesus than they actually are with themselves. I want to back up real quick and read a few verses before. He says this right before chapter 2. At the end, in the end of chapter 1, verse 27, he says, just one thing, as he's kind of giving them an update on life, like, yeah, I'm in jail, but it's cool, don't worry, I'm joyful, but just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Not being frightened, no, not by anything in your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you that on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now you're hearing that I actually still have. Paul has explained his imprisonment, how the gospel that put him in that prison, essentially, that he's being accused of, is actually making people more courageous. Like the gospel's actually taken off like with rocket boosters out of there. The more gospel ministry is being done, that the best gospel preacher's in jail. Why? Because the spirit of God has infected everybody around him and they're going out in their freedom and they're preaching the gospel. Bold, not afraid, not frightened of people or of the evil forces. They're going on it. And now he implores the church to bind together like their eternities depend on it. Live lives worthy of the gospel. Be united. Be brave in the courage of your hope. But most of all, church, we need to do this together. If you're going to make it to the end, you need each other. You need each other wrapped arm in arm as, as you march on the gates of hell. Nobody out in front, nobody left behind, but united in true humility, full of godly courage. What Paul has experienced is hard, right? Like almost dying like multiple times and not stopping. Like that's really, really hard, but what, he has, what he's experienced is actually all sorts of wonderful. And he wants them to remember. He wants them to remember the transformative power that they have already received in Jesus. He wants them to be captivated by the goodness of God that's flipped their lives on their heads. He says, is there any encouragement in Christ, Philippians? Absolutely there is, says Paul. 
He's nearing the end of his life and he looks out and he sees how all of his suffering, all the stripes on his body has actually prepared him for glory in heaven that he could have never experienced otherwise. And he is so excited about it. Paul, covered in scars, encouraged by Jesus, who is covered in scars but is now sitting in glory at the right hand of the throne of God. That is what Paul is captivated by. So is there any encouragement in Christ? Absolutely, he says. Philippians, you know this. Hmm. But as citizens of a better country, we the church should have smiles on our face. And so I ask us the question, is there any encouragement in Christ? Veritas. Is there any encouragement in Christ to us? Can we answer this question honestly? How about every single baptism video you've ever seen here? Like I was trying to think about all the stories I've heard and I think that's the most succinct way I can bring it up. How about every single baptism story we've ever seen here? Where what do we do? We show you or you show us. Like this was the lowest point of my life. This was like all of my sin and my pride and my lack of humility and the way I was destroying my life and far from God. And I hit rock bottom essentially. Like I found a new low. I found a new farthest point away from God. And yet I realized something. God's grace was right there the entire time and he brought me back in with open arms. And I can't think of anything more encouraging than watching video after video after video, semester after semester, ever since I've been here, watching people encourage me with their gospel stories, with the transformative power that Jesus had in your life. That encourages me. That should encourage each other. That God is doing profound work through his power. Paul goes on, is there any consolation of love, Philippians? Is there any consolation of love? Sure is. He literally, the food that he is eating in jail, like it's the, 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 the clothes he has on his back, it is a gift. It is like this church providing for him. It's the love and consolation that, giving, that they're giving him when he is at his bottom, when he should be distraught as ever, nearing death, imprisoned one too many times, beaten one too many times. Here is the church right alongside of him, getting him food, keeping him alive. Paul says earlier in Philippians 1, honestly, guys, I just want to die. It's going to be so much better. But I know I got to stay for you. I know I got to stay for you. That's the type of relationship that we're talking about here within the church. Paul is well acquainted with pain and suffering, yet he is still obsessed with the good of others. And he makes his decision for the joy of the people around him, not just his own. Paul, who is pointing to Jesus whose blood on that cross gave the very tears that fill his eyes an expiration date, knowing that one day this consolation of love will be full. Veritas, is there love in this room? Like I know some of you are new and you're just like, I don't really know how to answer that. Maybe, am I supposed to just feel that? No, I'm asking like for those people who have been here a while. Like, have you experienced the love of the people sitting around you? Like, I cannot tell you, just from my, from my standpoint, from my perspective, my experience here, I cannot tell you, over the past six and a half years of being here, how many of you have changed my life. That whether I'm going through a, a down season or a high season, people from this church have always been there to encourage me, but even more importantly, to console me in love when I need it. That people are there to open up their homes, to have shoulders to cry on, to just talk, 
to leave me alone if need be. Whatever it is, I'm telling you, this is a place that I've experienced that is incredibly full of love. I want to encourage you that if you have not experienced that here yet, keep coming, keep getting to know people around you, keep giving us a chance to love you like we should. I hope you agree, and I hope that sounds compelling to you. I hope that you want to experience what I've experienced here. Is there any fellowship with the Spirit or affection and mercy? Paul asked the Philippians. Absolutely. Paul has seen God create a church, a church on fire for his name in Philippi. And Paul's obsessed with them. If you read the book of Philippians, it's hilarious. Like, sometimes he sounds kind of angry at like other churches when he's writing to them. The Philippians he loves. I mean, he's a little angry at a couple things. Some people are fighting and stuff. But really, Paul loves these people. Because there's just this crazy story about how it's so obvious that God wanted to make a church. That he is just so encouraged that he didn't do anything. He just gets to look over from his jail cell, see the church and say, yes, God did that. The Spirit of God has done way more than any of my preaching or skill set or charisma could ever do. And that is a great encouragement to him. Is there any fellowship with the Spirit or affection and mercy? Like every single thing Paul has seen in his ministry, this church was indeed a gift from God. He calls them, he calls his family later in this book, his joy and his crown. That they are bound together, not just by shared experiences in this life, but by a bond and unity of spirit that is going to carry us on to the next life. What about us? Does this describe us? Think about the love that we have for the churches around us. And this is what I mean by that. How, much, how thankful are we for Cornerstone Church of Ames that they let Mark Aaron come here nine years ago? How cool is that? Like this exists because a church loved the idea of another church. Like everything you're seeing exists because of self-sacrifice. And out of that DNA, how thankful are we that there was over like 600 plus people at a salt company kickoff in Minnesota that Drew went up there to plant a couple years ago? That's going to be way bigger than our salt company soon. Awesome. We love them. How excited are we to look down the street at Veritas Cedar Rapids and they are way bigger than us. That is so cool. We're not jealous of that. No, because we love them. We're thankful for them. We love the people that come here, catch this vision and this contagious gospel and say, we have to take it everywhere else. How thankful are we for Drake and Paige Epkins for going up to St. Paul and having their first kickoff at St. Thomas with over 100 people at their kickoff. That's unbelievable. And I'll tell you what, this hurts. It also is awful (laughs) because we love those people and we wish they were here. But the nature of the gospel and our God who wants us to take that gospel out means that we have family who we love and we long for just like Paul in the Philippians. And we trust that his work is more important than our comfort. That his mission is more important than our country club mentality that we would hate to see happen here. And yet we can be thankful looking out at the gift of God and the people around us and the people he has sent out. Paul wants his church to remember the transformative power that they experienced in Jesus. He wants them to be a people who are more captivated with Jesus and everything he's done than we would be captivated with ourselves. I think he actually wants that for us today. If we're to be gripped by humility, it has to start with Jesus who transforms everything 
We know that every single hurt will be made well by the stripes of Jesus. That everything sad will be undone and made happy by the tears of Christ. That everything we know to be frightening and scary right now will become the very footstool of our God in heaven. And as we race down the ladder towards humility, let us start here with Jesus, okay? Why? Because when we start with Jesus, we remember the impossible being done and God in the flesh. We become people who are gripped with unity and joy that the world can't take away. Look at verse two. Paul says this, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, on the race to the bottom of the ladder, the road to humility, the step down, you will find this. You'll find that the joy you are able to experience together is unlike anything that this world could offer you. Paul urges the church that if in fact Jesus is risen and that this is actually good news to us, that we should take his joy to the next level by rallying together around the cross. That the cross changes the way you think about God as he reveals himself, not in just his grandeur, but his love and his weakness. The cross that takes sacrificial love to its very end as the righteous died for the sinner. The cross that ties the church's hearts together and ushers them toward heaven arm in arm. And don't be confused. This life, this Christian life, this unity is going to be incredibly hard. But as citizens of a better country, we are to be pilgrims with smiles on our face. And as emotions are free to go as they please, happiness and sadness can hit us in the face. Tragedy will strike. The Christian's heart is tethered to the steady cross. The Christian's heart is tethered to the joy of eternal life that nobody can take away from you. The Christian's heart is full of joy. And so what Paul is reminding them here is that the unified church is actually a joyful people. The unified church is the church that strives towards the same end. It's the church that knows who they are and knows in God's design that this joy must be shared. The unified church is the church that knows joy is best shared with others. Like, think just, if if you had a courthouse wedding, that's super cool, but I'm talking about normal patterns of life here. Why do 99% of weddings happen not in a courthouse, but at like a barn or like like a wedding hall, like a party place? Because you're taking this monumental moment of joy and you're not trying to hide it or conceal it. Like, no, the, the more natural response for us to take this grand joy that we've experienced in life is we have to share it with every single person we know. That we want everybody we love and have experienced life with us to be celebrating that joy with us. There's something about this joy that is only full when it is expressed. There's only something like saying, I love you to somebody. It only, like, is full love when we can express it. And that's what Paul's getting at here. We need to become these type of people who are gripped by unity and joy that the world can't take away. And with eyes captivated by Jesus, a unity fueled by this unstoppable joy that we are just feeding off of the cross and feeding between one another. He's now ready to make his final and weighty appeal that we started with this morning. Look at verse three and four of Philippians two. Do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but... In humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not only look to his own interest, but to the interests of others. Nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. How in the world is the work of Jesus on the cross actually supposed to help us do that? 
There's no way that could describe me. There's no way that's going to describe us on our own effort. How are we going to find that possible in Christ? Selfish ambition meets its end, I'm telling you, when Christ, the champion, has won more for you than you could ever win on your own. That when he has storehouses of riches and glory and honor and a name above like anything that you could get or esteem here on earth, he has that waiting for you. And so selfish ambition dies at the cross. Conceit dies when we are captured by the beauty of God as he is ripped apart on that cross. When we see that gruesome torture device and actually our eyes flip and we are captivated by it. You see, we don't have time for pride anymore. Not when Jesus is actually in the picture if we're racing to the bottom, racing down the ladder, this is what we will actually find. Jesus is already there waiting for us. We are actually free from our selfishness and pride so we can honor one another. We're actually free from the chains of affirmation and praise from others so we can encourage the people next to us. We're free to console and to cry with others because we have an unstoppable hope knowing that every single tear and sadness will meet its end in Christ one day. We are free from worldly divisions because we are bound together by something greater than sports, geography, skin color, political stance or anything. We are bound together by the spirit of God himself. And we will become a people who are finally free to love one another like we're supposed to. This is our vision today from Philippians 2, guys. This is our vision as we trek into this dangerous territory of trying to be humble people that we would race to the bottom of the ladder that we wouldn't treat the church like a grocery store finding just kind of like what we need here and leaving. That we would come ready to outdo one another in showing honor. That we wouldn't have to surround ourselves with people who only look like us, but that we would see the hurting and lonely and have eyes for them. And we would actually fight for their joy like it was our own. That we would not come here to be served, we would come here to serve. I don't know what this looks like for you, but, I mean, if it's got to be like me, it's got to it's be like a baby step. It's got to be something like simple, right? I think, I think we're surrounded by opportunities that would humble us. It's just a matter of will we step forward towards them with courage. It could be as small as like, hey, actually, you should talk to somebody for the first time here. Like, there might be a chance that somebody here is actually never, nobody's ever shook in your hand because you, you don't want that. I'm going to dare you to actually do that. Actually let somebody in to your life. Maybe you're like me, if you get a text that says we need help in Veritas Kids, maybe you don't just silence that. You know, maybe you actually do go sign up and work in the nursery. I don't silence it every time, just sometimes. Maybe you start giving your money because you know that it's not your own. Maybe you find somewhere to serve on these contribute cards. Maybe you actually decide to go above and beyond and be an overachiever, actually have lunch with somebody from church. That would be crazy. You open up your home for somebody. Maybe you actually don't just sign up for your connection group. You might actually go to it. Speaking for myself there. Guys, God has blessed us so stinking much. Just look at us. I mean, look what God has done for us. We should never forget that. But the question is, what are we actually going to do with it? We could kick back and get comfortable, yeah, and we're ultimately going to forget what God has brought us out of. We're ultimately going to forget the cross of Jesus where he bought us. Or we can look to Jesus, remember our family, and become who we are actually called to be today. Today we're blessed, but we're also desperate, desperate for humility. This isn't something that really comes with effort, but by way of reminder that our God is doing great things for his name's sake. 
And we get to joyfully link arms with our family here and strive down that ladder with every single thing we have. And so what we lean into today is very, very simple. We need humility, and we are desperate for God to give it to us. Let's pray. God, when I examine my own heart, like your scripture makes all of us do, um, I don't like what I see. I don't like my propensity to be prideful and to make life all about me. I don't like the way I walk through the doors and bounce from conversation to conversation, wanting to find the most comfortable place for me to be socially. I don't like just the way that I am so concerned with number one. But God, I do honestly believe that your example in Christ and your sacrifice on that cross was more than just something to strive after. It is transformative power for us to actually be changed. That if we just simply believe that that cross was enough for us today, that we will find the courage and the boldness and the power to actually step out into humility. Humility that can be scary. Humility that can feel upside down from this world because honestly it is. But God, I pray that we would find joy and unity as we charge down that ladder today. As we just go about this series in Philippians and just charge down that ladder to find Jesus. And so it's going to take a miracle, God. We put ourselves under that faucet of your spirit. Please, God, we beg you to turn it on. In your name.